I'd never been to Alaska. Mm-hmm. I'd never been in a helicopter. <laughs> and I certainly had never skied a face or faces like we were about to ski. I mean, it would be like going, you know, from your local crit right. to like a Tour de France sprint finish. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah, a yeah, totally yeah. different ball game. And, uh, and I loved it. And I ended up winning. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. We have a great show in store today. Our guest today is Big Mountain Skier, extreme skier, pioneering skier, world champion skier. Yes, he's a skier. Chris Davenport on the show today. I won't lie, this was extra special for a variety of reasons. One, Chris and I have been playing this game of, of global musical chairs We have nearly been in the same place at the same time to record a podcast on a handful of occasions, but it is only recently that we were able to find the time to sit down and do it. Not only that, amid COVID, amid a a time of Zoom get-togethers and Zoom podcasts, Chris and I were lucky enough to sit down during this King family drive across the country and record in person. And number two of why it's special, Chris is is something of a childhood hero of mine. I try not to let that cat out of the bag while I stay with him. But as mentioned in today's podcast, we are recording in his garage, which is something of a mini museum to his skiing career. There are skis and, and memorabilia everywhere throughout the garage, including posters. Some of those same posters hung in my room when I was a kiddo. So just on a personal note, it was very cool to catch up and chat with Chris in person. And a quick aside anecdote. When we talk about his early cycling career at Holderness, there is a direct tie to how I got into cycling. You see, my brother Robbie, he went to Holderness a couple years after Chris. Robbie got me into cycling. Robbie got into cycling at Holderness with the support of Phil Peck, a name that you're going to hear today as someone who was instrumental in Chris's foray into the sport. It is a small, small world. Anyway, you're going to hear some amazing stories from the world of skiing in this conversation that could easily be extracted and replaced by the, by the sport of cycling. That is, we're going to hear Chris talk about finding his people, finding his, his sport, something on the fringe of traditional racing, how his sport is so much more appealing to the masses, how there's this fascinating business model that, that propels the sport forward, the privateer nature of his place in the sport of skiing. If these stories don't sound like gravel cycling, jeez um crow, I don't know what does. Chris is an athlete, he is an adventurer, he is a family man, he is a businessman, he is a generous giver of his time philanthropically. This conversation has it all. I'm not going to take up any more time, so ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Chris Davenport. You know, often the the thread of the bicycle goes weaves through the lives of our guests, and be it a chef or or you know VPs at big tech companies, Instagram, Facebook, they're bike riders. Now, I thought it was going to be something of a stretch to be like, okay, how can we get the bicycle in Chris Davenport's life? Only to learn when you start name dropping folks like Steve Pucci and saying that you rode for CCB, like Steve Pucci, folks, is the godfather of New England cycling. You've been riding a bike for a very long time. So let's go back to the beginning of your bike riding career. How do you get into cycling? So I grew up in uh, Massachusetts on the North Shore of, of Boston, and I had a um, oh, I was a ski racer first and foremost. Uh, my family skied out of out of Mount Washington Valley, New Hampshire, and through skiing um, and summer conditioning, dryland training, I kind of discovered cycling. But it was one friend in particular who. I think I met in fifth grade um, a guy named Eric who whose dad had been an East German cyclist and they he had moved to the States, immigrated to the United States and and uh, introduced cycling to his son. And, and, and I knew him from ski racing. And so he said, you know, I'm bike racing this summer and you should come try. And I th- I don't know why I said, yeah, that sounds cool. And yeah. I was able to uh, convince my parents to to get me a bike. I'm just trying to remember. I think my first bike was, it was like a Japanese brand, like 
like Nishiki or something like that. I was about to say Nishiki. That was my first bike. Yeah. That was my brother's first bike. Was it a road bike? It was a road bike. Okay, yeah, mine was, was like the hardtail beater. I don't remember where I got it, but I think it was a Nishiki. <laughs> and and I raced that bike that summer um, and joined the CCB team because they had a great junior team yeah. out, of, um, out of Northeast Bicycles mm-hmm. in... Uh, on Route 1 heading into Boston. That was Steve Pucci's shop. And I just thought going into that shop was the coolest thing ever. Sure. And yeah, so it was, I think I was 14 years old or 13 or 14. And um, that became my kind of summer life for the next, uh, I don't know, six, seven years. Yep. So. And how about, so ski, I mean, you go on to become a professional skier. How is the segue as you're uh, uh, balancing the two things? Where does skiing weave throughout your life in, in those teenage to 20 years? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because as a young athlete, you can kind of manage multiple sports, right? N- not very few kids that are 14 or 15 or maybe even 16 are specializing. Mm-hmm. They, you know, you kind of want to do as many different things as you can. I was really into rock climbing as well, just huh. having grown up in North Conway. Mm-hmm. Um, we were climbing all the time too. Um but so my, my bike racing got to a pretty high level or our, our, our high school team at Holderness School was the best in New England. We won the New England championships, like, I don't even know, three years in a row at least. And, um, and then our CCB junior squad, you know, we were, we were traveling around the country and, and went to the um, big international junior race uh, tour to WTV in yep, yep, Quebec. Yep. And, you know, and let's just, sorry, let me interrupt. Let's talk about some of the hitters that were on your high school team there at Holderness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had, um, you know, guys like, well, Tyler Hamilton, of course, is probably the biggest name that came out of cycling, but also five-time Olympian Carl Swenson. Mm -hmm. Um, Pete Weber, who's Mm -hmm. just an incredible mountain biker, single speeder, fixed gear rider, just uh, lives in Boulder, just, you know, super strong. Um, Eric Kiter, who I mentioned earlier, um, uh, a bunch of great women on our team. Yeah. Uh, who Nikki Kimball, who was an incredible ultra runner. She won Western States like three times. Huh. Um, <laughs> Nina Cook, who's a who's an amazing uh, rando ski racer. So just like this amazing collection of just naturally gifted athletes yep. Um, yep, yep. and great coaching uh, <clears throat> with by the current. Um, head of the school, actually, Phil Peck yeah. has been there for a long time. He was a great cycling and Nordic coach. And uh, so when you have a high level, everybody feeds off each other and, and just gets stronger. Right. And I mean, I remember going to New England races and our team showing up and basically just like riding off the front yeah. and kind of like doing funny stuff or like blocking everybody else. And like Eric would ride off and then Tyler would ride off. Right. It was, I don't know, it was really fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, Which I, is hilarious as, as teenagers, like because... Cycling isn't huge in the States. Um, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, I don't know what the word is, your tactics or something, but like when you just have pure raw talent as teenagers, yeah. you're just like, all right, let's just play around here and kick some butt. We certainly didn't know that much about tactics yeah. or strategy. It was just like, you know, <laughs> hammer yeah. and and kind of mess with everybody else. It was mm-hmm. like a game to kind of play with other, you know, other teams and whatnot. And mm-hmm. uh, But it was, I remember it being, really fun. Uh, I definitely remember kind of getting teased by other athletes, like the football team would be like, Oh, how's those Lycra tights you're wearing or whatever. Cause you know, this is like the eighties. Like it's pretty kind of, uh, niche to be a, a bike racer back then Which as, is also as it like, is now but yeah. at least it's a little more normal it's ironic you know. coming from a football player i realize football is big and tough and so on and so forth but they're also wearing tights they just have, that's have a good pads. point that's a good point yeah <laughs> anyway racing in their underwear Okay, uh, let's keep the the chronological yeah theme going. So, how does this segue to uh, CU Boulder? Yeah. So then, um, myself and Tyler Hamilton and um, f- a few others uh, left Holderness and went to Boulder. Um, and I went there really with ski racing uh, on my mind, and as did Tyler, um, as did guys like Shane McConkey was at Burke Mountain Academy and, and others. Um, and I thought maybe I could race uh, my bike in Boulder and ski race. But what I found out was once now I'm at the collegiate level, uh, the ski racing level was much higher and the bike racing in Colorado, um, you know, the Cat 1-2 group was faster than the Cat 1-2 group <laughs> I had known in New England. Sure. And so I realized that I, I basically had to pick and choose. I couldn't do both. I tried to do both and it neither was working that well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
I'm not exactly sure why I, I went the ski route, maybe because it just felt like it was a little bit easier. <laughs> I mean, cycling <laughs> is really hard and it's really committing. And, and uh, so I, I just stuck with skiing and I said, okay, this year I'm not going to uh, bike race on the CU squad or I'm going to just focus on my skiing. Tyler Hamilton at the time also, um, had, he had gotten injured uh, skiing. I think he broke his back. And so he really couldn't ski race anymore because he couldn't be doing squats in the gym and the kind of training that you needed to do to be a ski racer, which is quite different than what you need to do to be a cyclist. Absolutely. So he he just said, I'm going to keep riding. And uh, that's kind of where our paths diverged. And, you know, obviously looking back now, I feel like I made the right decision because it was, um, it, it began a, a wonderful skiing career. Um, but at the same time, I, I never lost sight of my passion for the bikes. Um, and I say bikes cause I really like riding all kinds of bikes. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting here in my garage right now and I can see a, a fixie, a single speed mountain bike, mm -hmm. you know, a, a parley, mm -hmm. um, my, my Santa Cruz, um, trail bike, you know, my Canyon gravel bike, my specialized road bike. And yeah. I just, those things make me like, they make me happy. Sure. You know, my family makes me happy. My <laughs> kids make me happy. But I don't get never get mad at my bikes. Yeah, yeah, well said. <laughs> I mean, and then you know, right behind me, we've got the ski wall, and uh -huh. um, you know, when I look at that, it makes me really happy. <laughs> so no shortage of no shortage of toys here in the garage. No shortage of um, cool posters, as 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 it were. Um, which in these posters basically describe your professional ski career. Because yeah. we, were, we were chatting about it last night, and you basically went from from ski racing in college to deciding that you're going to be a college student. And then, you know, this booms into yeah. professional skeedom and a couple world champs. That's right. Um, yeah, there's a lot of memorabilia on the walls here. I mean, there was a time when posters were a big thing and you'd go to, you know, movie premieres and sign posters for the crowd and all that kind of stuff. And, oh, yeah. And uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm older now. My wife comes in the garage and looks around. She's like, what are you, 25? Like, get, <laughs> get rid of all this shit, you know? But it's, it's fun. I don't know. And I think as athletes, we love holding on to like our our uh, competitive years, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, so I graduated from CU. Um, those last couple of years at college, I was kind of just skiing for fun. I'd go to Vail or Arapahoe Basin and I'd do some backcountry skiing and was watching Greg Stump movies, loved watching skiers like Scott Schmidt and Glenn Plake jump off cliffs. So I kind of wanted to be doing that. And, uh, and then I got a job uh, working in the race department in Snowmass, Aspen Snowmass. So I moved up here to Aspen and was coaching race clinics and setting the NASTAR course and working on the mountain. I was living kind of the ski bum dream. Mm -hmm. um, mountain biking in the summer, I was doing, we had a, a Norba circuit in Colorado. I think it was called the Colorado Off-Road Point Series or okay. something like that. Nice. So I was mountain bike racing in the summer, um, cl still climbing a bunch and getting into kind of climbing 14ers. And, and in 94, um, Shane McConkie, who's a very famous professional skier who's sadly no longer with us, um, also an early Red Bull athlete like myself, he called me and said, hey, I'm going down to Crest de Butte for the U.S. Extreme Skiing Championships. You should come. And I didn't even know what that was. Like for some reason, those contests, which had been around for a couple of years in, in Valdez, Alaska and in Crest de Butte, they weren't on my radar, but I trusted Shane. I, I always had a great time with him. So I'm like, okay. So I signed up went down to Crested Butte, competed. And this is extreme skiing. You're skiing gnarly terrain, um, trying to make it look good for the judges, ski a difficult line really fast and fluid. I don't think we even wore helmets that first year oh, my that Lord. I did it. it was, this is like a different era. And <laughs> there was no such thing as wide skis. Like I was on my GS skis. Yeah. You know, it was like totally a, just a different era, but I loved it. I don't really remember how I did that first competition. I, I wasn't like one of the top people, but I kind of found my tribe, uh -huh. you know, it was sort of like you might be like a road cyclist and you go to your first gravel event and you go, whoa, this is, you know, this suits me. These are the people yeah. or it's more chill. Like, and plus I had grown up competing. I'd been in, I don't know, hundreds, if not thousands of starting gates. Uh -huh. So when I got in the starting gate of this extreme skiing competition, I was like, I had an instant advantage over people because yeah, I'd yeah, been doing yeah. it for so long. I was confident. I knew mm -hmm. how to like mental imagery and all that. Yeah. Uh, so that was great. Came back in 95 and did a couple more contests and then hit a turning point. In the summer of 95, I went down to Las Leñas, Argentina okay. for the South American Extreme Skiing Championships. Muy bien. And not only did I have a really, really, really good time in Argentina because the people there are great and the food's great and the wine's great and the skiing was unbelievable. 
and I won the final run of the contest. So, you know, I kind of felt like, well, if I can win a run, I can win a whole thing. Yep. That victory of that final day got me an invite to the next year's World Extreme Skiing Championships in Valdez, Alaska. That's the big show. Okay. Okay. So 96, I'm still working here in, in Aspen Snowmass. And, and, you know, I'm still kind of a ski bum. 96, I sold my pickup truck I don't for like, I don't know, eight grand, used that money to buy some plane tickets. I went to France to compete in Chamonix back to Crested Butte. I think I went to Whistler mm-hmm. and then went to Valdez. And in Valdez, I mean, it's Alaska. It's the Chugach Mountains. It's the big, the big show. Yeah, yeah. I'd yeah. never been to Alaska. Mm-hmm. I'd never been in a helicopter. <laughs> and I certainly had never skied a face or faces like we were about to ski. I mean, it would be like going, you know, from your local crit right. to like a Tour de France sprint finish. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah, a totally yeah. different ball game. And, uh, and I loved it and I ended up winning. No kidding. Yeah, crazy. Like just, I don't know if it's cause I was naive and innocent and should have been a lot more scared than I was, but I just nailed two runs and, and I'll quickly end the story by, um, saying at the awards ceremony, they hadn't announced the results yet, mm-hmm. but I knew I was kind of in there. So we're in the Valdez convention center. It's like a big deal. The whole town turns out, I think like the band Pennywise played afterwards, like it was <laughs> rowdy and, uh, they announce, they're announcing the awards and they're like, you know, in third place from Squaw Valley, California, uh, I think it was Kent Kreitler in mm-hmm. second place out of Squaw Valley, Shane McConkey. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm in fourth or whatever. <laughs> and then they're like, and this gives me total goosebumps to say it in the first place out of Aspen, Colorado. And I like, I mean, I had like tears in my eyes. I was like, oh my God, I won and got yeah. up there and place went wild. And there was so much support from all the other athletes. Like yeah. they all stood up like, yeah, Dav, you know, like, and, uh, after, you know, I got up on stage, I like ran out to the lobby and there was a payphone, and I dropped a quarter in and called, uh, Jesse, who's now my wife. We were just, just started dating. Yeah. It was like, I freaking won. She didn't <laughs> believe me. So That's on huge. the flight home, I basically in my notebook wrote a business plan. I'm the world champion. What am I going to do with this? How am I going to yeah. leverage this? How am I going to take this title and one, maybe try to make some money and not have to actually work a, a real job on the mountain, mm-hmm. but two, like get involved in the ski industry, mm-hmm. you know, with maybe with product design and development, with marketing and, and communications and storytelling. And, uh, and it's funny, I've kind of like sort of stuck to that plan all along and, and followed the, the passion. So and that's coming on 25 <laughs> years ago. So how about that yeah. first year in 96? I mean, you'd been competing up to that point. 96 in, in Valdez, did you have, did you have sponsors or are you still total shoestringing it? Yeah, I was pretty much shoestringing it. I was getting some free skis and I think I was getting some free clothing, but I definitely was not getting paid. Yeah. Um, and, uh, after that, so that was in early April, I think, um, that spring I inked like a five figure deal with a ski brand Mm -hmm. and I don't remember how much it was with that clothing brand, but probably a five figure deal there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, immediately it was like, I think I might've worked that summer on the summer trail crew at Snowmass. We, we were doing a trail, a uh, ski area expansion project, but then the following winter, 97, that was it. Yeah. And I haven't ever jumping right in, worked a, a real job like that <laughs> since. So when I stepped away from the world tour, I looked at somebody like Tim Johnson, who he had started that even the term ambassador really wasn't swirling around like it is now. Um, but I saw what he was doing in this independent thing via cycling and, and chased that. I've often made the comparison to skiing for, for folks who wouldn't understand what I'm doing uh, on the bicycle side because we can't, he can never make the same comparison being an ambassador in the, among big major four sports, football, baseball, basketball, hockey. So from your perspective in 97, were you completely writing your own script? Were there any other sports in which you could, you were saying like this independent program is viable, is feasible? Like I'm, I'm trying to picture you on that airplane ride, trying yeah. to write that business plan. No, there, there was no uh, pathway or, or script that you could follow. Um, I think that, you know, th- there were certainly other sports that had athletes that were, were, you know, doing well, maybe like surfing, yep, maybe like, yep, yep a little bit in climbing, but not really. Um, but I knew that if I, if I continued competing 
mm-hmm. and doing that, the free ride world tour. And the other big thing that I was doing was filming, mm-hmm. making ski movies every year. Mm-hmm. I think I've done almost 40 ski films. So <laughs> Warren Miller Entertainment and Matchstick Productions were the two uh, sort of premier companies that I worked with, but I did a bunch of other ones. So you'd spend half your season focused on competition and then the latter half of the season typically going off on exotic film trips with helicopters and you know skiing cool stuff and trying to lay down awesome movie segments yeah and then summers i'd kind of be off and i'd be riding and climbing and enjoying my time and then in the fall you'd be going on movie tour east coast west coast showing the films engaging with your consumers and your fans and all that kind of stuff yeah and so i sort of followed that that same program for better more than a decade probably mm-hmm. a dozen years and in i remember in 2005 summer of 2005 i was out on a mountain bike ride actually just above our house right here and thinking about the coming season because i've always been sort of goal setting and goal oriented and um like i like having that sort of thing hanging out there that you're trying to achieve rather than just kind of reacting to like what's going on around you you're focused on something and so i was thinking about the coming year and i was like you know i don't i've already won two world championships i won an x games medal i've like won all this stuff i'm like feeling good about the competition side um and i've done all these ski movies and it feels like same old same old like what else is out there that could be inspiring to me personally, but also maybe separate the Chris Davenport brand from the other athletes. Mm -hmm. And as I was thinking that I literally had this like epiphany or like this thing pop into my head, which was this word 14ers. And the 14ers is the Colorado 14,000 foot peaks. So I began thinking about sort of blending my, my passion for mountaineering and climbing with my skill as a professional skier and I, I came up with this project to climb and ski all the 14ers as fast as I possibly could. That is wild. I got back from that bike ride. I rolled right into here where we're sitting. Yeah. And, and I said to my wife in the kitchen, I was like, Jess, I've got this great idea. I, I know what I'm going to do this winter. And, and she looked at me like, you know, kind of waiting. And I'm like, I'm going to try to climb and ski all the 14ers. And her, her jaw like hit the floor. <laughs> she was like, oh my God, I thought we were talking about taking less risk. And, you know, we've lost like a couple friends this last winter and, you yeah. know, dozens before. It's just been like, and at this point we have two children. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was like, oh gosh, she just like, it's like put a pin in my balloon. I was right. like, Deflated. Wear a helmet. Yeah, but yeah. I, I couldn't get the idea out of my head. So sort of uh, behind her back, I began calling my sponsors and explaining what I was thinking about doing and none of them really got it. Mm-hmm. Ski mountaineering was as fringe as it gets. Oh, no wow. one was doing it professionally. Uh-huh. Maybe there was a, few, a couple people like in the Alps, like in Chamonix and stuff, some of the early pioneers, yeah. but the equipment was bad. Um, in fact, if we look across the garage, that pair of boots on the top left, I've kept them because that's the pair of boots that I skied all the 14ers in. Oh my Lord. Yeah. And if you compare that to like what's over on the table over there, it's like night and day. Right, right, right. Man. Yeah. So, um, you're basically inventing the sport. Yeah. And and like tweaking gear and working with Solomon at the time to, to start developing some products that would go on. I mean, they're a total, a leader in backcountry stuff right now. And part of it's because of the birth of this project. Uh So anyway, yeah, I went on, climbed and skied all the 14ers and, and that became the thing that I became, that I was most proud of. It was no longer the ski films. It was no longer the competition wins. It was like that really difficult um, climbing and skiing of the 14ers that yeah. I was like, oh my God, I pulled that off. So 50, 54 of them? 54, yeah. So it was like, it was a pivot. Sure. You know, it was getting to a point in your career, mm-hmm. sort of like, like you've done, or you mentioned Tim, like, okay, I'm going to stop doing this one thing, but I'm not going to stop being relevant. I'm mm-hmm. going to create a new relevancy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, now I'm not going to take credit for the explosion in backcountry skiing and the market and technology, but I was in the right place at the right time sure. at the beginning. And uh, that's it's, awesome. Uh, it's awesome. And then uh, one more thing about that is I had an English teacher in high school and I really, I liked writing and, and, and reading and speaking and things. And, and he said, Chris, you should write a book someday. It's kind of like stuck with me. Mm-hmm. So this 14ers project became this perfect vehicle to write what was Ski the 14ers, this coffee table book. Oh, that's so and cool. And that checked off another really deep personal goal yeah. of writing the book. Uh, it was so successful that I went on to write a second book um, called 50 Classic Ski Descents of North America. That was even more successful. And like, I'm, I'm just doing these things that I never thought I would do as a skier, but it's been like incredibly rewarding. <sighs> 
super damn impressive. Um, how about, you know, you hit on it. You had, you had two kids at the time. You have three boys now. Yes. Married man. Um, still married. Yeah. Still married. Shout out to Jess. Yeah. Shout out to the kids. Um, the, it was mandatory through your competitive career. And then, I mean, obviously when you're up in the, the woods doing a bunch of 14ers among other adventures, you're traveling a lot. So from my perspective, now that I have a uh, little baby Hazel and Laura and I are we've been married three years, who knows what the heck I'm going to be doing next year, let alone the next 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. How did that balance work in your life? It, yeah, it, frankly, it was, as I look back on it, it seems unfair. I, I burnt the candle at both ends, traveling around the world, competing, making movies on these mountaineering trips, guiding expeditions in the Himalaya, <laughs> doing all this stuff, making a very good living doing it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my wife held down the fort here big time. She took care of all of the household things. She raised the children. I'm not saying I was like a deadbeat. When I was around, I was very <laughs> present, you know, and, and, yep. uh, and certainly tried to give her as much, I don't know, freedom and time to do her own thing. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, I think I owe her, I owe her now 25 years of fun trips because yeah. she's, she's earned it. <laughs> you got an audience. Laura's back from her Laura's bike, right? back on her mountain bike. How come the bike's muddy, but you're not? Because Laura doesn't like to clean her bikes. <laughs> um, have you ever had an agent? Have you been your um, own negotiator? How does, how does that work for the past 25 yeah, years? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have always enjoyed the business side of, of skiing and, mm-hmm. and uh, in sports. And so I would say that I've been my own agent. Yeah. Um, I've never like had a contract with an agency. Um, I have had what I would call like a social media manager mm-hmm. in the last like eight years because social of course now is so important, but it's also very time consuming to do it right. Big time. So um, that's been extremely helpful, kind of checking all the boxes of expectations from sponsors and brands and making sure that you're posting timely things and doing, just doing it right. Um, I would rather spend my time on snow or on the bike, (laughs) not in front of a computer. Totally. So for me, it was very worth it to, to have that sort of, uh, segment of my business done, done right. Um, I have had some deals over the years, like outside the ski industry with like, uh, I've had a car sponsor. Sometimes I would reach out to agents that were friends of mine and just, you know, ask them for some advice. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, as, as a business, I really, I'm actually quite proud now that I was able to do all the things that I did kind of on my own. Yeah. Um, I never had to pay someone 10%, you know, or, or a fee. <laughs> That's a decent um, savings over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've been doing it for two and a half decades. You've been writing your own script for two and a half decades. There's somewhere along the line there have there was a leap of faith initially to see like can I do this? And then along the line, have you ever felt or maybe a better question is at what point did you feel, yes, I have established this and I don't need to be worried about the the complete crazy independent nature of of not having a pension, of not having yeah retirement funds, so on and so forth. Well I, to be honest the only time I've kind of ever worried about it is like right now, like yeah. COVID times are yeah. a little scary for independent athletes and um, uh, people that are um, self-employed, I guess you would say. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know what the ski industry looks like, but I know it's going to take a hit or it already has taken a hit. I don't know what the coming winter looks like, but you know, marketing budgets are oftentimes the first things that get slashed in mm-hmm. times of crisis. And that includes athletes. Yeah. So um, I have already had some conversations with some other brands mm-hmm. outside of the current st- stable of companies I work with just in case. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, actually, after back in 07, after I finished skiing all the 14ers, um, in, in conversation with my wife, she was kind of like, all right, you know, you, you've, you've done so many great things, you've yeah. done enough, you know, maybe you should look at some other things. And I had a couple job offers, one from a real estate uh, business in Aspen, which mm-hmm. most of my friends, a lot of my friends work in that industry and they do great. Sure. And, and another one from an investment firm in town that, mm-hmm. that wanted to hire me. So I, I could have very easily said, you know what, I'm going to, yeah cut the, cut the risk mm-hmm. out of my life. And I'm going to take this job that'll pay a, a monthly or, you know, bi-weekly 
or bi-monthly paycheck and uh, gone that direction. But you and I were talking about this on the bike yesterday. I have just always had this deep seated passion inside of me that I, w- I want to do everything I can in my business world so that I can be on the mountain skiing every single day. Mm-hmm. And if I'm doing something that's taking me away from that, I'm not following my, I don't know, my, this like thing that really eats at me. Yeah. I want to, I, lo- I want to be outdoors. I want to be in the mountains and I'm going to, I'm determined to be creative and figure out ways to make that happen. And I'm not giving up, especially and as, as I'm getting older and I've got a, you know, kind of a big, big birthday coming up this year. <laughs> it's like, uh, I just want to keep, keep at it. So it's a challenge for sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I think of like young athletes right now, if you're trying to become a pro in skiing or in cycling yeah. or in climbing, or it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. I had the advantage of sort of riding the crest of that first, or we'll call it the second wave of uh, pro skiers and the development of the sport of free skiing, mm-hmm. which didn't really exist before. And I was I, I, very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time surround myself with really good people, mm-hmm. um, have an incredible relationship with Aspen Snowmass as their ambassador, never mind these other brands. Yeah. So like all of these pieces fell into place, some of, some of which, you know, I, I, I kind of believe you make your own luck. It's not just luck, but you mm-hmm. put yourself in these situations mm-hmm. to succeed. But I look back on it and I'm like, man, I was pretty lucky to pull that off. So um, I would love to ski professionally for 25 more years. Nice. Um, and uh, I've been guiding a lot for the last 10 years and I want to continue to take clients on adventures here in Aspen or all over the world. Yep. All, although with that said, one thing that the pandemic has shown me is like, I really don't miss traveling. Sure. You know, I've burned a couple <laughs> million miles on United and I'm embarrassed yeah. by that. My yeah. carbon footprint is something that I'm kind of ashamed of. Interesting. Um, and I had to do it and I didn't think about it back in the day, just like none of us really thought about climate and mm-hmm. climate change back in the 90s and 2000s. And now it's something I think about every day. Mm-hmm. And so I want to figure out how I can again pivot. And I've already pitched some ideas like to Red Bull for this winter uh, to a low carbon footprint, but yet super interesting ski life. Nice. Um, so I've got ideas swirling around my right head. Right on. Well, yeah, you're, you're a man of many ideas, so yeah. I trust we'll, we'll see wanna, something going on there. I have to say, I'm, you know, we're looking outside the garage right now, and it makes me very proud to have a vehicle with New Hampshire plates parked in my, my driveway. Live for your die, yep. folks. I had those for many years. And uh, so I would like to have a vehicle like yours, yeah. but electric. Ooh, and there's a couple options out there now, like Amazon and UPS are both working with a company that's making these electric that's vans. Right. I don't know much about them yet, but yeah. um, that's something that's super interesting to me. That'd be wild. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't mean to brag. We have two solar panels on the roof. That's cool. Yeah. Of our yeah. diesel van. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would be super cool. Right? I well, think that's something that, again, like we all want to be at the forefront of trends and movements and and things and I, I kind of see that as, you know, the van life thing has exploded. It's mm-hmm. pretty cool and interesting. And um, I would like to do that, but not buy lots of diesel. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've heard the same thing. I mean, obviously Amazon is driving millions of miles a day. Of course. Uh, Flying uh, probably uh, more. U- USPS, I hear, is trying to do the same thing. I mean, big utility vehicles that are going big distances. Why can't we just be powered by the sun there? You mm-hmm. know? A little pivot. And we're going to get back to, to what we were just talking about a second ago. Someone doesn't know who Chris Davenport is. They meet you on a very long elevator ride and they say, oh, hey, nice to meet you. What do you do? Well, I, I'm pretty humble. So I tend to try to, I, I wouldn't, I don't know. I don't just come out and like say I'm a pro skier. And yeah. like, I, I might say something like I work in the ski business or the ski industry mm-hmm. And they might say, oh, cool, what do you do? And then we, we might finally arrive at the fact that oh, I'm a professional athlete. Um, you know, I'm a guide. I help companies with product design development, um, <laughs> those types of things. But I certainly would, would not offer that up right away. Mm-hmm. Um, just like, I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of my, my oldest sponsor that I'm still with or that's still with me is Red Bull. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I walk through the airport, wearing a Red Bull hat, I'm instantly recognizable as a Red Bull athlete. Accurate. But if I take that hat off, I can kind of be anonymous. Mm-hmm. And I, I do like that sometimes. So 
Yeah, I, I've I've worn many hats in, in or wear many hats in the ski industry. And in fact, we had a um, we have a wonderful YouTube series that I uh, did um, a few years ago with Red Bull called "The Faces of Dav." And each episode of the series is mm-hmm. sort of a different uh, look or a look at a different part of my career as a skier. Yep, um, the explorer, the the designer, the guide, the adventurer, on and on and on. I, I won't lie. I have this shit-eating grin on my face because I watched a few episodes last night. Last night. Last oh, Yeah, I was really? doing like a little bit more last-minute research. Oh, yeah. man, that, yeah. make, that warms my heart. Yeah. I'm glad people are still watching it. Oh, great <laughs> flick. Great series of flicks. Yeah, yeah YouTube, uh, yeah. Faces of Dav. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's super cool. Staying on track with the business side, you co-owned a ski company for yes. a while. Yes, Kessley. Yeah, Kessley Skis, yep, from Austria. Um, I mean, yeah... It, that was the episode, the next episode that I was going to be queued up last night if it wasn't time for, to go to sleep. So, I mean, it, it, that was just piqued your interest. It was, it was another way to stay involved. It was another way to, to give back and work with the sport. Right? Yeah. I mean, how did that operation come up? Well, th- this was another example of sort of being in the right place at the right time and, and having opportunity come your way. Uh, I had been working with Solomon for almost a dozen years and at the time, I think this is 07, 07 or 08. Um, you know, at the time I was kind of one of the bigger names in the sport in North America, certainly, but, but, you know, maybe globally in skiing as well. And, um, I just got a random call from a guy in Austria and he, um, introduced himself and we started talking and he said, listen, Chris, you familiar with Kessley skis? I'm like, oh, of course I remember the old Kessley brand. It was yeah. big in the nineties yeah. and I had some friends on Kessley and it, it went out of business. It was owned by the Benetton family from Italy, <laughs> big industrial family. And they owned some other sporting goods brands. And, uh, and Kessley went out of business and, and this guy, Siggy, still, still a friend. He said, Chris, we're bringing Kessley back. And would you like to be involved and help us start the North American side of the business? Because these guys are in Austria. They don't know retailers. I know everyone in the ski industry. Yeah, I know the oh, retailers. I, <laughs> I know the resorts, you know, I, and, and so I said, okay, this is, well, this is pretty cool. This could be something interesting. And I, as honest, I said, I have a great relationship with Solomon. Here's how much I'm making and their skis are really good. So you're going to have to do better than that. So he flew down to Portillo, Chile, where I work in the summer in August. Um, not this summer. <laughs> you and I are Accurate. sitting here and I should be skiing in Chile. Uh, but he flew down and he brought the first prototypes of the skis, which are actually right behind me. Mm-hmm. It's an MX-88, 88 in the waist. And he's like, all right, this is our first ski that we're going to be manufacturing, this 88. And I said, cool. And I skied it. And I was instantly like, oh my God, this thing is unbelievable. Okay. It is really strong, really quick, uh, stable, just giving me really positive feedback. And I, I put it on my wife. I put it on a couple other coaches that were down there and everybody had the same reaction. Yeah. They were like, wow, this ski is legit. Rad. And so I said, okay, if you guys are going to you know, make skis like this, good. We've checked that box. Yep. Here's a number that you're going to have to arrive at in terms of like uh, compensation or you know, athlete uh, retainer mm-hmm. is what we would call it. And they came back and said, yes. And I wrote a really nice letter to Solomon, thanking them for all the years of, of support and uh, signed with, Ke- with Kesley. Nice. Um, I, I mean, it was kind of a one-man show in the beginning. I was like uh, running our first trade show in Las Vegas for <laughs> Kesley. In fact, we weren't even on the trade show floor. I rented a suite uh-huh. at the Mandalay Bay. Right that was the hotel I was thinking of yeah, yesterday yeah, when we were yeah, talking yeah, that yeah. Shane McConkey base jumped off. Of so I rented a suite with like a chocolate volcano and inv- <laughs> invited all these people to come check out <laughs> Kesley. Got, and the word got out. Yeah. Bunch of retailers came. We signed some deals and uh, ordered, signed some orders. Um and then I hired a PR firm, actually Backbone Media and Carbondale, yeah, yeah. which is a very close friends of mine, and hired them to to uh, do PR and get the word out about Kesley. Um, that early winter, I think it was November 07, um, I met and hired who was the guy who's now our president, <laughs> uh, Jesse Pomerantz, who's been a great colleague and friend, and now he and he. 
he took it and, and ran with it. So I could, I could focus on still being an athlete and, and an ambassador for Kessley and doing all the things that, that I could do to promote it. But sure. he could work on the back end and the business and, you know, the deals. And we started, uh, Kessley USA as a standalone subsidiary of which he and I are, and one of the Austrian guys are still the, the board members of. We built uh, North America into 30, 35% of the global sales. Jeez. And through that, they gave me or gifted me ownership, some ownership of the company. Okay. okay. So that's how, that's how I became an owner. Yeah. And um, that's something, I would put that in my top five kind of things I look back on my career as like, you know, world championships and things like that, or X Games medalists, uh, uh, skiing the 14ers and the Centennial Peaks ski manufacturer owner. Sure. That was cool. That's next level, man. <laughs> it's next level. And, uh, you know, it was never a, a big thing We, in terms of like, we sold the company actually like a year and a half ago to a Czech investor, okay. billionaire Czech guy. And I made some money. It was good, you know? Uh, what I didn't realize is like the tax bill was going to be really big. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. The IRS came back at me, but uh, that was really cool. And, you know, I'm still with Kessley. They're still making amazing product. And um, uh, I... Uh, Aspen here where I live is our number one market in the United States. Yeah. So what that I really needed volumes. was like 10 of me. Right, right, right. One uh, in each ski town because then, you know, you need 10 Ted Kings. I hear that can, from the Maple. Yeah. Yeah. You can scale up and like, right so on. the Castley story is a really cool one and um, it's changed now with this new ownership. Um, uh, it's, it's still an Austrian based company, but the skis are being manufactured down the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to kind of grow by making some less expensive skis. And so it's not the company that it was when we started out and we were like, we were young and, and, and fast and kind of, uh, I don't know, it was, it was a startup. Sure. And now it's kind of big, <laughs> but that's the way it goes. Yeah. 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 The whole consolidation and, and things change. Yeah. But and it's, it's gotta be very, super cool to be there on the, on the ground floor. Totally. It's, and it's very much the, the story of lots of startups, you know, yeah. they grow and then they get to a point where their, their founders don't have the skills to grow them anymore. So you get rid of them. Mm-hmm. That's what that happened with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we grew even more and then we became attractive to a bigger investor and then he bought it. And then mm-hmm. kind of everyone who was originally there was gone. I'm like, sure. I'm like the original person still there. Oh, Actually, huge. no, I take that back. One other guy, Alexander was one of the originals. He's still there. Okay. But uh, yeah, that, that happens a lot. So, You'd asked this question to me, I believe, yesterday, and you weren't asking with the, the, the intention of digging, and I'm not asking this with the intention of digging. You asked basically the, the where I earn the percentages of, oh, of yeah. my income. Yeah. And I'm sort of curious the same thing from your perspective, because you wear many hats yeah. from ambassador to sponsored athlete to guide to author to mm-hmm. business owner. Is it a well-diversified portfolio there or yeah. is it still lion's share one thing or the other? So I I am fascinated by the business of sports and, yes. and especially when it comes, and I don't mean, you know, NFL and NBA and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's like its own <laughs> thing and I'm not that fascinated by that, although I'm interested. I'm fascinated by how individual athletes like ourselves make it work uh-huh. and how you build relationships and how you kind of leverage your brand to create a viable business and and buy a home and raise a family and do all these things that, you know, take money. So that's why I asked you because I kind of know how it works in skiing, but I don't really know so much about how it works in cycling. I know how it works like on, on the world tour mm-hmm. cycling. Oh, sure. You know, or, um, you know, maybe if you're like an Olympic athlete, but, you know, so anyway, I always like asking my friends like, okay, well, how's that work? So for me to this day, I would say 50% of my income is sponsors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then especially more recently, another probably 30 or 40% has been guiding uh, high-end clients on trips around the world um, and here in Aspen. Um, the book sales continue to do fairly well. Um, I do quite a bit of, of, uh, corporate speaking engagements, um, nice. although that's kind of dead in the water at the moment, <laughs> but, um, you, you know, you guys use zoom. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people are doing that actually. Oh, no and way. I have had a couple requests for like a virtual speaking engagement and yeah. I actually gave the, uh, Gave the address at the Aspen High School graduation this oh, year. Very cool. As the guest speaker, which was virtually really, no, no, live, live in the in parking person. lot, outdoors in a parking lot, yeah. like a, like a drive-in movie. Yep, it was really cool. That's For some awesome. reason, I was like really nervous about that one. I don't know why. I usually don't get nervous. But um, these kids are staring at me. You know, if the corporate speaking thing comes back, that 
you know, when I was, when I was doing it a lot, especially after guiding Mount Everest, I, mm -hmm. I used that Mount Everest experience, um, to craft a really great, uh, presentation around risk management mm -hmm. and risk management in the mountains and the methodologies that we use and how they relate to the business world. And I did a lot of those and, and I'll throw the number. I mean, I was getting 10 grand a pop for an hour. Boom. So that's if you can do decent, yeah. carry the one. Yeah, that's good. And money. that's, that's not, I mean, you know, you could hire some other, you know, some other famous athlete, he probably gets 10 times that. So it's not a, that's not a big number, but for me, it's a big number. Absolutely. And, you know, if I can do a bunch of those a year, that's good. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, those, you know, the books, the speaking engagements, the guiding that kind of rounds out that other 50%. Um, I'm trying to think of like what else I would do. Um, Play Powerball, just like yeah, <laughs> scratch tickets. Never, yeah, never bought. I think I did buy a scratch ticket once. Uh, I got a scratch ticket for my birthday once and yeah. won a hundred dollars. No way. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the other the other day, I was in this this store just down the road here in Snowmass, and uh, a guy in front of me bought a couple, and I kind of I didn't buy them, but it crossed my mind like maybe I should just drop yeah. in and yeah, here's ten bucks, but I didn't do it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of uh, the income right now, and I'm hoping I can I'm hoping I can sustain that um, going forward. But again, like with the COVID times, we don't really know what things are going to look like, and um, sure, you know, I might have to like liquidate the garage here. <laughs> well, <you're laughs> Actually, I do want to sell a couple here. of those bikes. So if anybody wants an unbelievably fast single speed. Niner Air Nine Carbon. The thing is eighteen point two pounds in a rocket. I'm trying to sell that. Come on up to Aspen, folks. It's yeah. a it's a lovely orange black motif. Yeah, that thing's awesome. So, as I continue to look at the van, uh, I think of the the electric possibilities that you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Not to take all your time this morning, we had an interesting conversation probably a month ago about how you you spread your time philanthropically. Yes. Um, and one of the key things in the, the hinging point of that conversation was POW. Mm -hmm. um, you said something really interesting to me because I, I pour a lot of my effort into the Krempel Center and the King Challenge, which is cool. one event, a yep. cool fundraising ride for the Krempel Center. Yep. And I never wanted to water down my message. And you, I was inspired by what you said about sort of dividing it amongst three pillars. Yeah. Go. Yeah, so we, I'm glad you asked that question because the thing that's most important to me, and we've been talking about business of skiing and, and my past in skiing. The thing that really is important to me now in my life is giving back. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been able, I've been so fortunate to take so much from the sport and, and do good with it. Um, so I spend a lot of time advocating on the climate change uh, space, in the climate change space with Protect Our Winters. One of the original board members, I've been involved with the organization for over a decade or around a decade, uh, I sit on the board um, and I just really believe uh, deeply that I don't want to leave my kids with a planet that's more effed up than we found it. Mm -hmm. And it's our duty as citizens, just like I clean my garage and I clean my house and I keep my backyard clean, we need to keep our planet clean. Mm -hmm. And as a human race, we've been trashing it for you know decades, if not hundreds of years. And um, it feels good to to do the, do the right thing and, and help the transition from fossil fuel e economy and extraction and, and a very dirty business to the future of renewable energy um, and, 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 and transportation and all, all these things are super important. So that's one pillar. Mm -hmm. uh, the second pillar is that I have lost a lot of friends in the mountains over the years and I, I am reluctant to give the number, but it's shocking. Mm -hmm. And, close friends that I spent lots of time with that died in avalanches or in falls or in accidents. And so uh, safety in the mountains is, is really important to me and, and avalanche education is especially important. So I, I serve on the board of the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education and raise money for the Colorado Avalanche Information Center and try to give back in that space so that people, uh, young people, especially that are going in, in with the backcountry and backcountry skiing exploding, especially this year, I think people need more information. They need more education to make good decisions and to be safe. And you can have a long career in the backcountry skiing. Um, but not if you're bold and you take risks and you take chances. Mm -hmm. So 
That's the second pillar. And then the third one is, you know, I was lucky that my family introduced us to skiing at a young age and put us in a ski club in New Hampshire. And I got coached and, and I love ski racing. And both my sisters were on the US ski team racing World Cup. And we just got to do all these awesome things as kids. And I want, and skiing is getting, and snowboarding. When I say skiing, I, I tend to mean all winter sports, but skiing and snowboarding are getting quite expensive. And so, I'm, I'm currently the president of the Aspen Valley Ski and Snowboard Club, which is the largest youth-based winter sports organization in the country. Yeah, we have cool. almost 2,400 kids in the, or, in the club. Skiers, snowboarders, <laughs> big mountain skiers, Nordic skiers, freestyle skiers, summer bike programs. And we uh, give away almost $2 million a year in scholarships Holy cow. to offset the costs. Sure. So like, say you're a 16-year-old ski racer, you know, you've got your coaches, you've got your races, you've got your training and all this stuff, the cost, the real cost of a, a year, a season of doing this would be like $15,000. Sure. And these kids are paying like five or six or oh, seven, awesome. depending, mm -hmm. you know, it's still, you know, not a small amount of money, mm -hmm. but um, we are lucky living here in the Roaring Fork Valley in Aspen that there's a really philanthrop philanthropic population and you can raise a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, our our, our signature fundraising event is this really fun ski race called the Ajax Cup. Yeah. And last year we raised almost 900 grand Jeez. in a day, in a day. Is <laughs> which is, a, a, you know, incredible. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. um, I am sort of uh, at the helm of this ship in a really tough time <laughs> with COVID. And we need to make sure that we continue to raise money so that we continue to provide opportunities for kids. Yeah. Um, and, and, people that are listening to this might be thinking, well, it's like Aspen, you're like, you know, giving scholarships to like white, wealthy kids. Uh-uh. There's a lot of kids in this valley that need help and they're not all white. We have over 400 Latino families hmm. in programs. Hmm. So there is a diversity here, which is, which is great. I mean, skiing has its own like diversity problem, of course, but sure. uh, I think we're doing pretty well. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot of uh, time every day and every week thinking about how to give back and how to do it in a meaningful way. Um, it makes me feel good. I think it sets a great example for my kids mm -hmm. and they see what their dad's doing right, you know, nowadays. And, uh, and, and I think it's also, it's also good for my sponsors that they see their athletes using their voice and speaking up because it wasn't very long ago that brands, whether they're bike brands or ski brands or whatever, didn't stand for anything. Mm -hmm. They just sold stuff. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, cons Ted, consumers care. You know, the consumers want to buy from a company that stands for something and maybe puts that out there first. I mean, maybe that turns off some consumers, but certainly not me. Sure. You know, when I go to the store and I see a POW logo on a bag of coffee, or I I hear that, you know, Cliff Bar is giving away 5% of, you know, the sales of that item, or I see that a company uh, is a member of 1% for the planet. I buy that product, mm -hmm. you know, that, and I mm -hmm. think millennials are even more sensitive to that. Yeah. No, big time. Yeah. It makes, are you guys, are you at untapped involved in any kind of like 1% or B Corp or any kind of stuff like that yet? We're, we're getting there. Juggling those conversations nonstop. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, we're exactly yeah. well said. We're inherently we need to have good weather in yeah. order to produce maple yeah. syrup. I mean, um, we're I, working on uh, uh, low environmental footprint products. We're working on recyclable products. We're working on, um, yeah, we want to have, we want to start with a great set of ethos and not purely be bragging about the things that we can be doing. Sure. Um, I mean, it seems to me, and you and I talked about this a while back, like climate change is affecting the forests of the Northeast, yeah. just like everywhere else in the world. And when you're trying to make maple syrup and it's, like 50 degrees in February. Sure. Those trees aren't really happy, right. are they? They're running in January and oh you're my like, gosh. oh my gosh, fingers crossed. Yeah. So, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Strange, strange times we live in. Um, amid yeah. what? Two weeks ago, Colorado had its biggest wildfire in history. Yes. It's August. Yeah. I mean, it's actually still burning, but not much anymore, yeah, yeah, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. Well, someone, I think maybe it was you. Pow, protect our winters. Yeah, we want to protect our winters, but also cyclists don't want to be riding when it's 110 degrees. Like, let's keep yeah, our, I mean, our general temperature down. You know, Pow was an incredible idea because it's a great acronym, Protect Our sure. Winters, founded by Jeremy Jones, <laughs> a snowboarder. You have to start somewhere, but climate change doesn't discriminate. It's 
it affects everybody, yeah, yeah. you know, and in some countries and some places might be more resilient than others, but whether you're a cyclist or a runner or a climber or a skier or a hunter or fisherman, you love the outdoors. Mm-hmm. And we have this whole concept now that we're pushing like the outdoor state. So you might be from New Hampshire. I might be from, from Colorado, but we're both members of the outdoor state. Accurate. Because, you know, our, our, and that's 50 million Americans. That's crazy. You know, so when it comes to like voting, if you can rally 50 million people around passion for the outdoors, mm-hmm. wow, you're pulling a pretty big lever right there. And I'm not trying to steer this discussion into politics, <laughs> but it's, it's really important to me, man. Like November is really important. Um, I care about our public lands. I care about the outdoors. And uh, I, I don't want to see like environmental regulations rolled back so that we're polluting more. You know, less would be better. I'll just, I'll just well shut said. up there because well I, can, I can run off on a tangent here for a while. I get fired up. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Um, we we're going to wrap purely for the sake of uh, timeliness and throughout the day. And, and Laura's got to run off. And that yeah, well, we got we Hazel. got stuff to do. We got bike rides ahead of us. Exactly. And uh, we're sitting. It's the morning, so we can't talk about like the beers that we like. Precisely. Good Colorado beers. Great Vermont beers. Yep. So we can have all those conversations offline. But we're going to wrap with three questions. Okay. We are surrounded by bikes. Mm-hmm. You have. Uh, we've been talking about COVID, and COVID's struck a, a strange chord amid this summer of 2020. What percentage of your time are you spending on any particular bike? Mountain trail, oh, single speed road, gravel. Yeah. What are you up to? Uh, I, I would say my my usual answer is 50 50 road and mountain mm-hmm. over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, but this year. Um, I got a gravel bike for the first time from Canyon. Welcome to the club. Yeah, and I am so hooked and I love it. So now I guess I'm going to say like 30, 30, 30%. Nice. And then I'll throw in like a, 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 so what's that? That's 90. So I'll throw in a 5% <laughs> on my single speed and a 5% on my fixie uh-huh. maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, and in fact, I'm getting ready to leave in a couple of days for a four-day uh, gravel adventure from Telluride to Moab with oh, a big gang of friends, like 14 of us. dreamy. Yeah, which is going to be sweet. I did that trip on mountain bikes. Are you doing the hot trip? The San Juan hot trip? No, we are sort of doing like a glamping uh, kind of camp thing. Dang. Setting up our own. Well, we, we've got a bunch of staff and some yeah. trucks okay. coming with us and yeah. doing it right, you know? That's right. We've got... Like there's like seven women, seven men. Uh-huh. And I, I don't know if I could speak for the other women, but I know my wife likes to be very comfortable when yes. camping. Okay, fair. You know, uh-huh. an excellent pad and bag and cot perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah So yeah. yeah, we're doing it right. Very so, good. You know, I'm a, my, my old friend Tyler Hamilton used to say um, when he was raising money for um, MS through the Tyler Hamilton Foundation, mm-hmm. he would say, um, you, Chris, believe in the power of the bike. Yes. And that totally resonated with me and it still does because- like I said earlier, these bikes make me feel good yeah. in my body, in my mind, you know, traveling and discovering new roads and seeing new places. I mean, you get, you get that you've been on 100%. more roads than anyone I know. Yep. Well, it goes to your point. I mean, go back to, to when you're in this pivotal point of your life, like, do you want to get into real estate? Do you want to get into the financial <laughs> services or like your passion is still skiing? I freaking love bikes. I love every aspect of bikes. I love the possibilities that bikes provide. I love the freedom. I love yeah. the, ah. which is why you are still working and and being an ambassador and, and being a cyclist, you could have ended your pro tour career Fact. and just said, okay, I'm going to be a real estate agent mm-hmm. or I'm going to work for a hedge fund in Boston. That or is, I've, I had every expectation. That's exactly what I was going to yeah, do. <laughs> but your, your passion for bicycling rose up above that. And you said, I'm going to stick with this because this is what I love and, and life's short. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of uh, ski racers or cyclists would end their competitive careers and say, okay, I'm now I'm going to go on to this next thing and I'm going to work in this industry or this business. Bingo. But when you love something so much, you can't do that. Yeah. And often because it has become their business. Yeah. Like cycling got too hard, serious, uh, grueling something. Anyway, okay. That got serious quick. When I grow up, I want to be and or when I grow up, I want to be like so that can be, what do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Like? Well, I haven't grown up yet. Um, Someday. I, I, I love the, I had just finished guiding like a four day thing here in Aspen and the clients that I was with, um, somehow the topic of age came up mm-hmm. and um, 
they thought I was like in my early 30s. Oh, no way. Yeah, and I was so stoked. (laughs) That made me me feel really, really good because I don't feel like a grown-up and I can't believe that I've got kids that are in college and like, you know, grown-up kids. In fact, we don't have no, we have no kids in the house anymore. They're all gone. You wear sunscreen a lot. You look youthful. You moisturize. Actually, yeah, moisturize. My my wife buys me these fancy creams and she (laughs) convinces me that they're good for my my face. Uh But I go to the skin doctor too, because I'm out in the sun a lot. We both are. Sure. So it's important. Uh, Yeah. I'm not going to grow up. And if I do, I just want to ski pow. Yeah. Well said. (laughs) That's perfect. Okay. And independent of COVID, you travel a ton. You adventure a ton. You go all over the world. You're given a free week vacation on life. You can pause life in general, and you're given an airplane ticket anywhere in the world. Where are you going to go? That was meant to be the final question that I was posing to Chris. It is at this point in the day, in our original recording, that the battery decided to take a nosedive in my recording device, unbeknownst to me at the time. So, fair listener... You might remember, in our last episode of Payson, I asked him if he's ever lost an episode because of any technical issues. He said a battery died in his conversation with Hans Ray, and the recording never saved. So needless to say, I was just a little bit terrified when I realized the battery was dead at the end of this conversation with Chris. Thank goodness we did not lose it. Time marches on. Thank goodness Chris is a great sport, so I'm going to summarize his answer. Where would he go with his free ticket on life? Chris would take his wife, Jess, and they would go to BC or the mighty AK Alaska and ski that big mountain fresh dry powder for a week. What a guy. What a husband. What an athlete. What an awesome guest. Chris, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. And to you, our listeners, my friends, I can't thank you enough for listening. Hope you're all having a great week. That is all for now. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.